Well, I hope you've got a Bible on the way in. And uh, if you did, now's a good time to uh, find uh, Jeremiah. I'm not going to run a race to see who gets there first. It's not a book that we open nearly as often as we could or should. Um, It's actually the longest book in the whole Bible in terms of the number of words in it. But it's perhaps one of the least read. And we're going to look at Jeremiah chapter 31. You'll find it on page 791. 791. And it's Jeremiah 31 and verse 31 if you're uh, looking at it in some other version. Jeremiah himself was born, well, some 600, 650 years before Jesus, uh, in a time where in the East, Confucius and the Buddha were shaping Eastern thought, and in the time when in the West, Plato and Aristotle and the like were shaping Western thought. And in the midst of incredible upheaval, of Assyrians and Babylonian empires, and in the midst of the upheaval of intellectual thought and religious thought, Jeremiah speaks his words of prophecy. He was somebody who was the the son of a priestly family, uh, somebody who uh, was brought up uh, living in ancient Israel, and who experienced the disaster of um, being uh, taken away into exile as the Babylonian Empire succeeded the Assyrians and as uh, the ancient Israel, God's ancient people, were uh, thrown out effectively of that which was most dear to them. And as he lived through this time of tumult, Jeremiah wrestled out loud, if you like, not simply in words of uh, sort of intellectual discourse, but in poetry and in imagery and in song as he spoke on God's behalf. He wrestled with one core question. A question he comes back to again and again and again, and a question that takes us right to the heart of what it means to be part of God's people. And the question is this, what happens when we mess up? What is God to do with the likes of us, says Jeremiah? What is God to do with the likes of us when he has given us everything and we give him next to nothing? When God loves us with an unbreakable, unshakable, never giving up love, and we love ourselves, but not him. What is God to do? What are the consequences? Does God care how I live my life? And if so, or if not, what next? By the time that we get to Jeremiah 31, God's people, ancient Israel, they knew that they were in serious trouble. Uh, Already a chunk, maybe a hundred years before, a chunk of God's people uh, had been um, run over effectively by the Assyrians and and all but obliterated. And now the next great superpower of the region, the Babylonians, were tramping through. And uh, they got caught really in a pincer movement between Egypt and Babylon. And as Jeremiah looked on this this mess, this chaos, this disaster for God's people who were, uh, don't forget, living in the land God had promised them living in the the sort of physical embodiment of God's blessing, they looked at what was happening to them and Jeremiah asked the question for them, what is happening and what will happen next? Has God given up on us? Does God care? Is this our fault? And if it is, can we turn the tide? Will things ever be different? And does God care at all? Well, let me read for you just a few verses. Uh, We could spend weeks just on these few chapters in Jeremiah, but we've got about 15 more minutes. So we're just going to look at a few verses. Um, Page 793, let me just turn you to Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31, 793. The time is coming, declares the Lord, 
when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their hearts, in their minds, and write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. And no longer will someone teach their neighbour or someone their brother, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. For Jeremiah's first hearers or first readers, there were two basic answers on offer for this question of what happens when we mess up? Does God really care? Is the universe, how is the universe constructed in terms of me and my messiness? Me and my inability to actually follow even my own standards, let alone some other standard. On the one hand, there's what we were calling a few weeks ago in our little series on this covenant love. Um, there's what you might call a contract. There are plenty of worldviews around them, and most of the pagan religions around them would have thought this way, that imagined God as uh, the author of and the signature to a contract. And in this contract, you as a human being, I as a human being, had certain contractual obligations towards God, and God had certain contractual obligations towards us. So if we were to pray in the right way, make the right sacrifices, go to the temple enough times, then, and only then, God would approve. God would give us gifts. That was what was at the heart of the the sort of pagan religions around them at the time. That was what was behind some of the practices that we find so hard to even begin to imagine, let alone stomach, from the sacrificial systems uh, through to the extremes of even child sacrifice. The idea that if we do this thing, and the more extreme the better, God will take notice. God will notice we've kept up our end of the contract and God will act. So we'll have fertile animals. We'll have a plenteous crop. We'll have success against our enemies. Contract. Now, in that case, the answer to this question of what happens if we mess up is really simple. You're in trouble. It's the end of the contract. You are under penalty. You, you, you will reap the consequences. That's true of contracts today. If you're meant to be building a house and you mess it up and you don't co- complete with the contract, you are under law, supposedly. I know some of you have had rather negative experiences recently. I realise I'm treading on um, touchy ground here. But you know that that's what contracts are meant to do. They're very much arm's length things, though, aren't they? They're, they're not meant to really be about a loving close, intimate relationship. They're the opposite of that. They keep you at arm's length. They say, if this, then that. But at least they're simple and straightforward. You know exactly what's going to happen if you mess up. You're in trouble. Now, of course, sometimes human relationships end up like that, don't they? Sometimes even the best human relationships get warped and twisted, so they become contractual. I will only if. I will until. You better watch out, because if, that's a contract. And God's ancient people, Israel, they looked around them and they knew that there were some other nations that thought God was exactly like that. But they knew from the whole of their history, that's not who God is. God isn't a God of contract. He's a God of covenant. Now, of course, there's a 
a different way of looking at things. It'd be easy to imagine, and there will have been people uh, at that time, but perhaps even more today, who thought the universe worked the opposite way. Not by contract, but simply by open-handed commitment. A A commitment is simply a way of saying, I approve of you no matter what. You know, if you're a Chelsea supporter, we offer prayer. Um, But if you're a Chelsea supporter, uh, then actually no matter what Chelsea do, you're going to carry on being a supporter. You might be a fairly disgruntled supporter, but you don't suddenly, you know, hand in your season ticket unless you weren't really one to start with. If you're a a, a fan of a a rock group or a particular devotee of an author, uh, you continue to be that fan, that devotee. And it's not a, a sort of contractual arrangement, but it is still arm's length. It's a devotion. It's a one-way admiration. It simply says, I'm committed to you. Actually, there's lots of people who would love to imagine that that's exactly what God's like. They hope he's not like a contract God who has a big stick waiting for us to mess up, although they fear he might be. They hope God's going to be, on the other hand, just committed to us, not really caring what we do. That sort of kindly, ineffectual, great uncle figure in the sky who simply smiles benignly on us and watches us mess up and goes, don't worry, it's okay. Even though we know it's not. Even though we know it has to matter. If God operates by contract, then I'm going to get what I deserve. Nothing held back. If God is simply committed to me, then I will simply get away with anything. But in both cases, God doesn't really care about me. These are arm's length arrangements. And everything in their history told God's God's ancient people Israel that that's not the sort of God they worshipped. That instead their God was a God who only ever relates to people by what the Bible calls covenant. A public binding commitment of love to another person. A public binding commitment commitment of love to another person the remarkable thing about a covenant is that it takes that most precious of gifts love and makes it if anything even more precious even more intimate even more reliable by publicly binding it to a promise that's what a covenant is god covenants to his people he doesn't have to god's god he doesn't have to restrict his independence and his, his 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 ability just to do what he pleases Instead, he makes a covenant and he says, not just, I like you, I approve of you, or I give you commands and rules and you should do it this way or else. He says, I love you with an everlasting, never stopping, never giving up, publicly bound to you, love. But the problem with that sort of love, as we said the other week, is that there is no neutral response, is there? If somebody says to you, I'm an admirer of your work, you can simply go, that's nice. If somebody says to you, here's this contract to sign, well, you can choose to or you choose not to. If somebody looks you in the eye and says, I love you, I will always love you, I am devoted to you, I publicly commit myself to love you for always and forever. There is no neutral response. And the problem is that that is what Israel realised as they looked back at their history and as Jeremiah uh, recounted in his work the story of God with them. 
that over and over again, God had committed himself to them. God had committed himself to, in the picture language of Genesis 1 to 3, he'd committed himself to to the very first people he'd made. God had committed himself to them in in the promises to Abraham and through Moses to his people, uh, and before that to Abraham, and, 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 and over and over again, God makes these public covenants. And the problem is, what happens when we don't keep our end up? What happens when God says to us, I have loved you with an everlasting love, I simply look for you to love me back, and we turn our back on him? What is God supposed to do? What happens when we mess up again and again and again? Well, what happens is that you end up needing all sorts of scaffolding, if you like, to keep our end of the bargain up. The the scaffolding like the tablets of stone that Moses brings down the mountain from Mount Sinai, with the laws written on them. I mean, imagine how sad it would be if with your nearest and dearest, your spouse, your partner, if the essence of your relationship was a set of ten commandments on the wall that you had to look at every time you were relating to one another. Wouldn't you think something had gone a bit wrong at that point? Wouldn't you think, actually, this is meant to come from my heart. I, I meant to want to do this. I, I meant to, to, to want to live in a way that loves them. No, no, no. God's people needed these Ten Commandments to, to remind them of how they were meant to live. Jeremiah reminds them of it. He talks about not like the covenant I made with the forefathers. And he says that they, um, I gave it to them as they came out of Egypt. That was the, the Ten Commandments he gave to them. But he also reminds them of, of the priests, those who were just one step closer to God, it seemed, that had to step in the gap between God and his people. So there was a sort of hierarchy of closeness to God, only to remind them that all of them felt a million miles away. And what they ended up with was this boom and bust. They ended up with these moments in their history when God had to shake them out of their complacency, to step back a little bit, to remind them of how much they needed him, of how much he loved them, of how desperate they needed to be to love him back. And they'd go, no, 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 we forgot, we forgot, we're going to come back to you, we repent, We, 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 we love you, we're going to do everything we can for you. And what would happen? It would all go wrong again. This cycle, this cycle of sin and forgiveness, of lovelessness and love over and over and over again and so Jeremiah says that God has made a promise the time is coming declares the Lord when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah and it won't be like the old covenant like I gave to your forefathers when they came out of Egypt because they kept breaking it as if they were a faithless wife to her husband or a faithless husband to her devoted wife to his devoted wife In other words, what God is saying to them, don't you realise that when you break the covenant, you don't just break something, you break my heart. What's to be done? If over and over again we're going to break God's heart, if over and over again we simply can't keep up our end of the covenant, doesn't it just become like a contract? God's going to wallop us? Or does God just have to commit to us and say, well, actually, it doesn't really matter what you do, I don't care. No, instead he promises a new covenant. And in the new covenant he promises, verse 33, I will be their God and they will be my people. Now on one level that could simply be 
just pie in the sky when you die, a bit of a, a wish somewhere out there. Surely God is just dooming himself to failure again. Surely this cycle of boom and bust is just going to happen again and again and again. It's just that Jeremiah has glimpsed something. He's glimpsed something that comes to fulfilment some 600 years later. Because this promise in Jeremiah of a new covenant, a new way of existing, is picked up by another preacher, the writer of the book of Hebrews, anonymous this time, writing to his congregation about this new covenant. And in fact, this passage is the longest chunk of the Old Testament that's quoted in the New. Would you just look with with me for a moment? Keep your finger in there if you'd like. We're going to turn over to Hebrews, which I'll find for you in a second. Uh, Page 1,206. 1,206. You can see the quote that's there on the bottom of that, starts on the bottom left of that page. But God found fault with the people and said, the time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. And then verse 13, having quoted what Jeremiah said, he said, by calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete and what is obsolete and aging will soon disappear. And then skip on to the middle of the next chapter. There's so much that we could talk about. But verse, nine, verse 15 of chapter nine, for this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. You see, what the Old Testament shows us time and time again is that we cannot keep up our side of the covenant. God loves us. We simply never find it in us to love him back. And the more we try, the more we find that we heap up this pile of sin, this pile of debt, if you like. I owe God. For all the times that I've turned my back on him, all the ways in which I've trampled on his feet and on his creation and on those that he's made and loved. That's what the sacrificial system was for. They would bring an offering as a tiny way of paying back the tiniest bit of their debt to God. And yet, just like somebody who's taken on debt that is too great and can't even pay off the interest, that debt towards God just got bigger and bigger and bigger. No sacrificed animal, no given up part of one's wealth could deal with the fact that I don't love God the way he loves me. I don't live for God the way he's committed to me. I don't give back to God as he gives to me. I'm not the person he made me to be. And so says the writer of Hebrews, God steps in. This is the God who doesn't stand at arm's length, but who steps to our side of the covenant. It's as if we're on opposite sides of a table. God gets up and walks round and sits in our seat. God does for us and instead of us and on our behalf and in our place that which we simply could not do for ourselves. God in Jesus pays the price that we can't pay, pays the debt we can't pay. That's why the language in Hebrews is that of sacrifice. Jesus steps in as the perfect sacrifice. Jesus lives the life we can't live. I can't live a perfect life. I seem incapable of loving God the way way even I want to love God. Jesus 
pours into me his spirit so that these laws, rather than written on tablets of stone, are now written on my heart. Rather than having an external checklist of things I know I'm going to mess up, God, by his spirit, comes to my side of the table and pours into me the motivation and even begins to empower me to live the way I was always meant to live. In other words, in this covenant love, God does things in a way we could never expect, but that to us as human beings makes all the sense in the world. If there's somebody that you love that much, maybe you're a parent to a child, maybe you have a spouse or a partner, maybe you look up to a parent or a best friend, you know and I know that it breaks our heart to love and not be loved back. You know that human beings, even us, even we, are capable of great love, but also of breaking people's hearts. Imagine if we were able to put ourselves in the skin of that other person, to put things right on their behalf, to live out that love in a way that would make it right, to properly help them to love in a way that they are loved. I'd do it for my kids, like that if I could. How much more does God look at us and say, you cannot do this for yourself. So in Jesus, I will come and live the life you cannot live, pay the price you cannot pay, and I will help you love me back the way that you cannot do on your own. Not a contract that we will simply break and receive the penalty, much as though lots of people assume that's the way God works, nor simply a commitment that God doesn't care the way we live, a covenant, a covenant of love that is for us, that is devoted to us, that loves with an unbreakable, unshakable, faithful love, and that steps around our side of the table and fulfills what we cannot fulfill. Do you know, as we've been uh, baptising uh, Roxy and Georgie and Ryan and Benjamin, we've been acting out something of what we've just been talking about. Because the reason that we're, uh, uh, we baptise babies to adults is that the focus of baptism for us is not on what we might achieve for God, not on our love for him, not on my prayers, my devotion to others, not on how good a person I might be, not on how great a Christian I might be. The focus of baptism is on what God in Christ has already done for these four children and for any of us. That God in Christ has already said to Ryan and to Benjamin, has already said to Roxy and to Georgie, do you know I know you're not going to be able to do this for yourself? I know you won't be able to love me the way I love you. I know that you will always mess up. But I love you so much that in Jesus I have already given myself for you. I love you so much that I will do for you and on your behalf what you cannot do for yourself. So our prayer for them, our prayer for each of us, is that they, that we, might simply have arms and hearts open wide to receive what has already been done for us. And as he fills us with that love that comes from him, that we will therefore, as I've said so many times in that baptism service, be able to love him back. Not because I'm better and good, but because of what he is in me.
The band are going to come lead us uh, in a final song of worship. Let's pray as they come forward.